When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. You join me for The Bigger Picture, where I am joined by Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Mike, I hate to say this, but we're going to start talking about, about Gavin Williamson. I mean, <laughs> I don't quite understand why Gavin, he's just one of those people you think, well, he surely should have you know, gone into the background many years ago. Oh. When have we heard ever heard anything positive about Gavin Williamson? Well, I, I, honestly, it's one of these things where you really do end up wondering, uh, probably out loud, if the Westminster system is is fit for purpose, if it if it yes. works well, and the kinds of people who are prioritised for political office uh, because of talent, seemingly useless to the rest of us as well so one of the things that gavin williamson is apparently famed for is his understanding and ability to manage the conservative parliamentary party which has become this increasingly ungovernable body of the last few years so for context he was david cameron's parliamentary private secretary that's his closest mp aide his eyes and ears on the back benches he then became theresa may's chief whip he served in the cabinet under her until he was sacked into in 2019, mere months before her end of the end of her premiership for allegedly leaking state secrets. Something he, I should say, he has always denied, uh, leaking the contents of a National Security Council yes. meeting for context. There, he then came back into cabinet under Boris Johnson, who he had then backed for the leadership. So you're starting to see a pattern here. He was education secretary during the pandemic widely thought to have handled that badly. He was sacked in uh, September 2021. He received a knighthood for some unknown reason. And then this year, he became uh, involved in the leadership campaign of one Rishi Sunak, again, in his function as the uh, gathering support among the Conservative MPs. And he found his way back into the cabinet, albeit this time in the, in the job of minister without portfolio. If anyone's wondering what Gavin Williamson did, by the way, I could say that the, his responsibilities were ironically confirmed on the day that he was sacked. He oversaw such important things as the government property office of the Geospatial Commission, which is all about location data. So he's hardly somebody who's overseeing crucial aspects of government. Uh, what we but, used to call it, school of classroom monitor. Absolutely, but th- th- these, these, uh, this talent appears to be just uh, uh, the ability to make himself as a, uh, apparently some some form of suck up, effectively to different Tory leaders, has masked the fact that as an individual he has a reputation around Westminster, numerous allegations of unpleasant behaviour. He is not popular on the Conservative backbenches. He's not even very well regarded by officials he's often worked with. And even, um, I say that some ministers can become quite beloved 
of the officials that they yes. work with. So if you think about the loyalty that Margaret Thatcher inspired in Charles Pole and uh, Bernard Ingham, her longtime yes. civil service agent who became effectively close political advisors as well as policy advisors in the civil service as well. But Gavin Williamson has... There, there, there are two incidents that come to light. The first of which were a series of text messages he sent to his successor as chief whip in the trust government, Wendy Morton, in which he castigated her for not having him be invited to the Queen's funeral because he's a privy councillor, claiming it was for some reason it was because he was out of favour with people. It included some rather foul language and the phrase, don't don't puss me about, yeah. I know how this works, everything has a cost. And then a senior civil servant, a former senior civil servant, I should say, has made a complaint against him now officially uh, over the allegation that he told them to slit their own throat and jump out of a window when he was Defence Secretary. Now, this I should say that the first thing I have to say about it, it's not just about getting rid of it, it's a frustration with how these things are reported by the media in Westminster. If this, if this stuff is apparently widely known, and I accept that politics, people work on gossip, you know, and I, 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 I work in politics and stuff, I love gossip as much as the next Politico, but stuff like this, if it's been circulating for years and it only then becomes sort of common knowledge within the Westminster kind of newsletters and columns at times when it suits people i know journalists sit on stories but these incidents should be aired in the media i think journalists have responsibility to put these allegations out there as soon as they come across them because yes. otherwise this, this unacceptable behavior goes unchallenged it's and it's partly because of the wider systemic failings as well that mean that this kind of behavior whether it's inside the civil service whether it's inside the uh, parliament itself among yes. mps or indeed mps to their staff and the members of the house of Commons staff as well there isn't really an effective recourse now parliament has gone out of its way i would say to deal with this in recent years the speaker lindsay hoyle the former leader of the house dame andrea ledsom have led the way on this putting in place the independent grievance procedure uh, there's really been a great deal of scrutiny on the so-called Pestminster scandal as well, which is about bullying. So the former Speaker John Burke yes. has been in the spotlight <clears throat> for that. A report that showed there was numerous allegations of bullying against him that went unchallenged for 10 years. But in government, there's been an even worrying, more worrying trend because, unfortunately, the final arbiter of this is the Prime Minister. Now, for many years, we had a Prime Minister, the former Boris Johnson, who was quite prepared to tolerate bullying behaviour from his missus, or certainly alleged bullying behaviour from his missus, particularly the Home Secretary Priti Patel, who had to reach, an, the government had to reach an out-of-court settlement with her former se uh, senior civil servant, Philip Rutham, who was a long-serving permanent secretary and ended up clashing, butting heads with her at the Home Office. There is a, there is a, there is always, this government in particular, and government's attitude towards civil servants has been typical of the kind of mistreatment that the Tory party has, has lumped on civil servants. And I'm not saying that, uh, that the criticism for the civil service as an institution aren't valid. There can be things that's too resistant to change. I have full disclosure, my partner's a civil servant. I have many friends, close friends who are civil servants as well. Uh, um, there are many things to commend it as a model, but of course, like any model, it has its flaws. And of course, ministers will be frustrated with it at times. There are you know, if you read the, di the diaries of any minister, including the, the very entertaining ones of Sasha Swire, the wife of now Tory yes, peer Hugo yes. Swire, there are some wonderful examples in there of kind of how civil servants are used to getting their way. But it's it, at the same time, there isn't the degree of abuse that's undergone. We look at the fact that 
under the Johnson government, we lost, well, we've seen under the Johnson Trust government, the four of the most senior civil servants all changed, lost the cabinet secretary, the home office permanent secretary and the foreign office permanent secretary, all under Johnson. And then, of course, we had the uh, Tom Scholar, the long-serving senior civil servant of the Treasury, sacked by Kwasi Kwarteng on his first day in office. And of course, we now know that was because they didn't pull in the same direction as the government's mini-budget. And the whole point of having an apolitical, um, professionalised civil service is that it's meant to ensure a degree of continuity. It's part of the reason why, given the considerable churn of ministers and prime ministers we've had this year, things are largely able to be kept going. These are individuals who are expected to work to whoever is in charge to pivot rapidly to adjust their priorities to serve ministers and yes there of course there will be things that civil service doesn't like but ultimately governments do i believe have the final say in these matters as, as it should be minister civil servants advise ministers decide but gavin williams his attitude embodies this kind of worrying trend among the conservatives in particular who are meant to be the great respecters of our political system and constitution to treat these people with contempt as, as a general category and this goes all the way back to attacking the excesses of whitehall spending but the the recent behaviors or the post-brexit behavior of the government particularly the post-may government behavior of the civil service and this goes this is when kind of when the erg wing of the tory party came yes. in it reflects a deeply worrying trend so the fact that sir gavin has resigned um he's not well liked in westminster i or outside it or outside of it i strongly suspect that the the time is coming when the conservative party will this will be yet another example of the next election when labor able to wheel out of a tory cabinet minister probably Allah in the george in, in the john major era who went too far had too much time for their own regard. It's almost back to sleaze, as it were. Yeah, and I, 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 you're obviously as mystified by Gavin Williamson's career as the rest of us are. I, I keep thinking back to, I mean, almost before your time, but the original House of Cards, um, when the chief whip there, the reason that he was able to get on so well was that he had the dirt on everybody. Do you think that's the case with Williamson? But you also forget with Francis Urquhart, you know, and again, a massive House of Cards fan right. myself, um, that the the original series is not so much the remake, but yes, I agree. The original characterization in both versions is that the the chief whip is actually quite a charming figure. That although he's able to put a bit of stick about, he's actually widely regarded as being an apolitical yes. figure in the sense of the party. That he's actually seen as a sort of consigliere. Gavin Williamson hasn't undergone that, and I think there's a very instructive story about him. And in many ways, I don't think I I, I, I think I think actually it's not really that mystifying. He's just somebody who's just very good pretending he's indispensable to people yes. and getting them what they need to get into power at the time now we all know people like this we've all worked with people like this who have this ability to kind of worm their way into the favor of employees but actually don't really bring a lot and i think when Keir, Keir Starmer hit upon an inspired phrase when he said a frustrated middle manager who gets off on control we've all known people <laughs> like that yes. in work i mean i'm not going to name any of my yes, 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 but... middle managers although there have been a couple uh, that sounds actually right. what a great shame though that he's resigned um so late that he can't actually go yeah. to the jungle. I can't help feeling a lot of people would like to see him, along with Matt Hancock. I mean, oh, somebody else who we have me. to talk about now. I mean, uh, I, I oh. do not watch I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. I do occasionally read what has happened there. But you can't help feeling that either he doesn't understand what the programme is about or he's an extraordinary masochist. 
I think it's more the case that he's got a very expensive divorce going through and he has to try and find the money for it as well. I mean, in the back of my mind, and I'm being very, I'm being very, very um, unfair here to his new, to his new, his new mistress, his, 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 his wife, to be Gina Collagio. I think here that perhaps he, he would have preferred to have stayed in Westminster and been tre- chair of the Treasury Select Committee, but he's realised actually that he's, he's, he needs a lot of money at the moment. I mean, he's getting paid £400,000 to do this. Uh, in principle, politicians doing these sort of shows, I you know, I think about Vince Cable doing Strictly Come Dancing, for example, the Christmas special, talented ballroom dancer in his own right. Um, the eccentric George Galloway moment on Big Brother, yes, Nadine yes. Doris doing it. I think the reason... I'll tell you why I think the Matt Hancock example is probably the most egregious example of this. And of course, I should mention the former Scottish Labour leader, Kezia Dugdale, as well, um, went on I'm a Celebrity too. Is that I think, look, politicians are, in the sense that the basic defence is right, that it, it is a, a unique platform. And actually, I think politicians going on these, on these programmes actually is kind of a good way of perhaps humanising themselves in a way. But there's a couple of reasons why I think Matt Hancock's probably the worst example of what, first of all, there is the role that he's played in people's recent lives. And we've seen widely reported the the fact that he was behind so many of the decisions during the pandemic that the COVID inquiry will probably show were very badly wrong. And I include, you know, issues like PPE procurement, issues like pushing care home COVID patients into care home settings, for example. The fact he was the face of the situation as well. For a lot of people, you saw the you saw the widely reported um, reaction of the singer Boy George to it. So, for a lot of people watching that, the, the, it's a fundamentally very selfish thing to do for somebody who's in that role to try and humanise. Because the only thing Matt Hancock is really trying to do is rehabilitate his own reputation in that light. He's trying to try to eke out a sort of Ed Balls esque existence. But the other reason is, and this is fundamentally why he should have done I put Nadine Doris in this category as well, but she has more form on this than he does, and her constituents keep re electing her no matter what. I think they understand what kind of person Nadine Doris is in terms of pursuing her career as an author, doing these incredible, doing her very odd stints on talk TV. Um, is the fact that he's left his constituents without a representative. And yes, I think yes. the reaction of his constituency vice chair where they said he could eat a kangaroo penis and they could quote him on that is about as good as it is. Because ultimately, if you're Matt Hancock's local party, if he's constituent, you've seen not only have you seen this man uh, run to be prime minister, try, try to run for the highest office in the land. You've then seen him serve in Boris Johnson's cabinet during the pandemic, have a very important role. You've seen him have to make very contentious decisions that impacted the lives of tens of thousands, if not millions of people, be one of the faces of those announcements, then have to resign in ignominy. Of course, a lot of people in Mike Hancock's constituency will know his family, will know his ex-wife, will undoubtedly, you know, have, you know, there'll be people who stand by him and when he wanted to carry on being an MP. Yes. And... If you were if you were that individual now, and suddenly he's gone off to the jungle in the middle of serving as your MP, you'd feel pretty stupid. Yeah. And of course, who's representing them now? This, the people of West Suffolk have no representative in Parliament. His staff can keep answering the emails, but ultimately he's not there. He's not voting. He's t- still taking an eighty thousand pound a year salary. It's it's honestly he shouldn't be in Parliament. And the, I, I, it struck me just how far this had gone. I was watching. Um, Andrew Neil's show on Sunday night and the rather excellent Sebastian Payne from 
DFT, who's naturally sort of expectative or, or, or sort of emollient commentators, was just openly contemptuous of Hancock and, and Williamson. And these are people who've held senior close positions for successive prime ministers at the heart of all the governments since 2010 into key roles. Hancock was a former issue George Osborne, David Cameron's PPS was Gavin Williamson. And it really reflects, I think, the fact the Conservative Party, I think, has some real bad eggs in it. And these are just two men suffering very bad midlife, yes. midlife crisis at the moment. Well, I so, yeah. yes. maybe somebody warn me if he does end up eating a kangaroo's penis, maybe I will actually turn on to watch that. <laughs> Let us take a brief break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. Mike, where do you want to go next? Um, we're going to do the Sharm Shake and talk about COP27. So I think we're recording this on a day when Just Stop Oil protesters are infuriating those of us who live in the Greater London area by blocking the M25 again to coincide with it. The um, This, is, of course, marks the end of the, the year in which the UK was actually, well, the period in which the UK was actually uh, had the COP presidency. So we've handed the torch over now to Egypt. There's numerous things that we said about the staging of the of the of the of the summit at a very expensive resort where well-meaning activists are attending but having to pay through the nose for I think someone said they had to pay twenty-five pounds for two boxes of tampons, which wow. bonkers. Um despite it being sponsored by Coca-Cola. Yes. Well let, but let's talk about how the UK has positioned itself on this. And you'd think this for Rishi Sunak, you'd think this would be the first moment, it's his first big international summit, and it's also the one in which the UK has a leading role. So to get for context, are the outgoing COP president, Alok Sharma, was giving a speech at the only other conference. It's all about, the we had the, the Glasgow Pact, I couldn't tell you what any of the Glasgow Pact was. It certainly wasn't as consequential as, as Paris climate change, but certainly, if, the, if Rishi Sunak wanted to be seen to be leading the world on climate change, he would have been there straight away. And of course he wasn't. And this was the big story, the fact that actually it took Boris Johnson, the former prime minister, swanning up to COP to, to enjoy the limelight. At least he didn't go to the jungle. But then again, I think Boris should probably be worrying about his own 7,000 odd majority in Uxbridge and South Ryslip, although yes. he's definitely not uh, contesting that seat in the next election. You can have that bit of insight for free right now. For for our our new prime minister, our new new prime minister to to even attend, and and I have to be said actually, on the one hand, uh, there's a picture of Rishi coming off the plane. Uh, he looks at, as ease at these things as Emmanuel Macron does. You know, one of the things about our new prime minister is that unlike the two or three immediate predecessors, the immediate predecessors, he is much more image focused. He's much more self assured in how he presents himself. And that kind of smoothness we haven't really seen since David Cameron, because Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, all very, very awkward individuals on the international stage for varying reasons. And having 
you know, particularly the the marked contrast between the dishevelled Johnson and the sort of polished, you know, yes. seeing Sunak on the international stage as as, as as a modern Brit made me feel good. I think he, he cuts a good image. He cuts a clean image. But the fact is, at the back of my mind, I couldn't help but think to myself, you were going to skip this. And of course, you can argue he was there for a day, he came back again. You can argue he's got this, the autumn statement coming up in a week or so. In fact, it's a week today. He's. You can argue that the the you know he's he's got very important things to focus on. But the prime ministerial role is actually something he's meant he's aspired to have. But also, it's also about presentation and turning up to things as well. And I think that it probably underlines the fact that our prime minister is a little bit inexperienced in this role. Remember, he's only been an MP since 2015. This is akin to Nick Clegg becoming deputy prime minister again. You know, Sunak was elected as an MP in uh, 2015. He was a PPS. He was on the back benches for a year. He was a PPS, then a minister for a couple of years under May, albeit an important brief in local government. He was in the cabinet for, even he'd been an MP for four years, 2019. Then he was chancellor, during the pandemic, which is a real baptism of fire. But the the thing is that the time he's been there, a criticism that keeps coming up again and again about Rishi Sunak is that he doesn't have well-developed political instincts. And we can tie it back to Gavin Williamson, tie it back to the stuff that's been going on with Suella Braveman as well, which seems to have died down over Marston and all the stuff with the migrant things, that these people are staying in the cabinet. And also these bizarre appointments he seems to have made, these people who maybe he's trying to balance the party out as well. This is probably why, in the sense, you can't tie it back to your earlier question, that Gavin Williamson was able to kind of be sold as a sort of an integral advisor, because Richie Sunak isn't someone who has a, a deep understanding of Conservative Party politics. He's, he's, he's not somebody who has, is reputed for having Johnson's kind of instincts for the populist field as well. Yes. And although they talk about the grown-ups, I think that this, the COP example is a Good is a good one of how he needs to develop his feel, his own persona at the moment, his own feel for the role. Now, I think there's time for him to grow into it. I think in the same way that he's kind of cultivated his own appearance during the pandemic, you know, things like Eat Out to Help. But actually, you know, he did put his own spin on that. But he also has to develop more of a reactionary feel to things as well, more of a kind of instinctual feel for how politics goes. Because ultimately, it's not a science, it is an art. It's all about people, it's all about engagement. And of course, nobody gets it right all the time. In fact, we know pretty politicians do get it wrong. But the fact that, you know, you're on a major international summit, most prime ministers, Liz Truss would have been there in a heartbeat, Boris Johnson would have been there in a heartbeat, even Theresa May would have been there in a heartbeat. And you have to think to yourself, what does this say about Sunak the man that he didn't clock that he should be there? Yes. Yep. Okay, Mike, that, thank you. So progress report there on, on uh, our new PM. Now, I know you want to talk about the American uh, midterms, and I'm worried we might run out of time if we don't do that now. So let's take us across then to the other side of the Atlantic and where we are. So we are recording this just for context, just days after the uh, the polls. And the the polls have shut, and the, probably even at the time you're listening to this, dear listener, the the full picture will not be clear because we're cer- certainly in control of the Senate. We're going to have a special runoff election in Georgia to decide that. But what is clear, as a couple of days later, is that normally in a in a U.S. midterm, you would expect the incumbent party 
the party that normally has control of at least one House of Congress and the presidency in the case of this. Certainly, if it's a first term presidency, Joe Biden, who has had control of the, the House and a, a narrow control of the Senate since 2020, to receive a drubbing. It's, it's, it's almost a sort of it's almost a, a given rule of American yes. politics that voters turnout is lower in midterms. Uh, but there's also dozens of gubernatorial races across the country as well. It, th- these are very important elections for America too, because it's also about the the state of the opposition party. It often leads to possible candidates for the uh, the nomination for the Republican Party, and indeed the Democrats, if it's the end of a second term, or indeed maybe the end of a first term, if Biden decides to stand aside, if Biden decides to stand aside, that's a big if. To come to the fore, we were expecting the Republicans to have what's called a red wave. There to be a sweep them to take the House. That's nearly always a given because those seats are they've they're there for various reasons. A, the tide tends to be with them because the Democrats are facing very difficult economic circumstances, inflation. Biden is personally very very unpopular. There's also a lot of issues. For example, things like crime, uh, immigration, the even the sort of the woke issues that the Republicans would call them. It didn't materialise. And there's a couple of things I think that we have to say about this just quickly. One, Pennsylvania Senate seat, John Fetterman flipped the seat from Republican to Democrat, which means that Biden's chances of holding on to control of the Senate or certainly eliminating the Republicans' control is increased. There are still four Senate seats to declare at the time of this result, but Biden's job of holding the Senate has become a lot easier. Secondly, most importantly, the Republican control of the House is going to be a lot narrower than we thought. They'll have a smaller majority. Now, that in practice means they can be less obstructive. Yes, they can do things like dismantle the January 6th inquiry commission that's looking to indict President Trump. But it also means that Biden's unpopularity is not as much of a drag on the Democrats as we thought it was going to be. Finally, most importantly of all, though, probably a big sigh of relief, the man who was hoping to benefit from this was Donald Trump. Donald Trump made a swathe of endorsements to about 300 candidates across this, mainly people who buy into his election-denying narrative in 2020. The idea that the previous election, even though Trump polled fewer votes, lost the Electoral College as well, that he'd lost that election. An outright fabrication, there's no truth for it, but they've been trying, the Republicans have embraced this narrative and tried to pull up a slate of candidates. And they had to say, this is the mainstream Republican Party here as well now. That would win this. These slight, often slightly eccentric characters like Herschel Walker, who's running for governor in Alabama, not Alabama, Georgia, sorry, the ex-footballer, are often in David Cameron's words, fruitcakes and loonies. They didn't they didn't have as much success as they thought. The Trump magic appeared to have waned. And then you have Ron DeSantos, the governor of Florida, winning in a huge landslide, flipping a county that's pretty much never backed the Republicans time and emerging as a greater challenge to Trump. This doesn't mean that Donald Trump will not be the Republican nominee in 2024. I still think it's likely he will run. We're expected to hear that. In fact, we will probably be talking about that on the next podcast we do because we'll hopefully know by then. But things to that that route to a second Trump presidency has gotten a lot harder because of that. And that is something that we can all take a little bit of comfort from. Because do you, although think it was, Santos, do you think it was Trump that actually stopped the rubber Republicans doing better as they had been expected to do? I think that a lot of people are looking 
don't forget, the voters that do turn out in midterms are probably more politically switched on. Yes. And I think it shows that there's probably it's harder to galvanize Republican voters in the middle of an election cycle. I think the presidency might be different. I think actually Biden's got another two years to run. I think it'd be a mistake for Joe Biden to run for a second term because I think his powers are rapidly failing him and he'd be better off to stand aside after a very successful first term in office, actually. I think he could just chalk himself up to be actually one of the most successful one-term presidents in yes. history, leave on a high, great legacy to be proud of with the Inflation Act. The COVID response is dealt with. But I think the Trump magic might be wearing off a bit, Simon. So I'm going to say yes on this, but that doesn't mean that Trump isn't going to be president again. But I think it means that Ronda Santos is now going to be a key player yes. and expect a, those two to be vying for the hearts and minds of the Republican base in the weeks and months to come. Mike, I'm sure we'll come back to this many times, but we'll be talking again soon. That's Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Mike will be back with me, I hope, in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.